Section 10 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 The Ottoman Conquest by J. B. Burry, Part 2. One of the most obvious policies for the Western enemies of Muhammad was to enter into communication with his enemies in the Orient and attempt to concert some common action. Such negotiations had been set on foot by Popes Nicholas and Calixtus. The last two sovereigns of the dynasty of the Grand Komneni of Trebizond, who were now the representatives of the Roman Empire, John IV and David, had endeavored to organize an alliance of the principalities of Asia Minor and Armenia, and to gain the support of Persia. It was upon Uzun Hassan, prince of the Turkomans of the White Sheep, that they above all relied. In 1459, David wrote to the Duke of Burgundy, announcing the conclusion of such a league, and expressing the conviction that, if East and West were to strike together now, the Ottoman could be abolished from the earth. But the League availed not David, when two years later, Mohammed came to destroy the Empire of Trebizond, 1461, and Uzun Hassan left him in the lurch. He surrendered on the offer of favorable treatment, but he was not more fortunate than the King of Bosnia. He and his family were afterwards put to death. At the same time, Mohammed seized Genoese Amastris and likewise Sinope, an independent Seljuk state, and thus he became master of the whole southern board of the Pontic Sea. It was about this time, 1460, that Pope Pius indicted a most curious letter to Mohammed proposing that the sultan should embrace Christianity and become, under the patronage of the Roman See, emperor of the Greeks and the East. A little thing, he wrote, only a drop of water will make you the greatest of mortals. Be baptized, and without money, arms, or fleet, you will win the greatest lordship in Christendom. Had this chimerical proposal been seriously meant, it would argue in Aeneas an almost incredibly fanciful and unpractical mind. But when we find that he himself composed Muhammad's answer, we may infer that the letter was written as a rhetorical exercise and never intended to be sent. The prospect looked brighter in 1463, when the breach at length came between Venice and the Sultan. An offensive and defensive alliance was concluded between the Pope, Venice, and the King of Hungary. The Duke of Burgundy joined it. The cooperation of Venice seemed a security that business was meant at last. The Pope, though he was advanced in years, resolved to lead the crusade himself. Ancona was appointed as the mustering place, and thither streamed from all countries bands of poor and ill-furnished people drawn by the hope of booty, 1464. But neither the Venetian vessels, which were to transport them to Greece, 
nor the princes who were to lead them, appeared, and Ancona and the whole country round about groaned under their excesses. When Pius arrived in June, he found but the remnant of a disbanded rabble, and overcome with disappointment, this victim of an idea out of season fell ill and died. Venice, unlike the Pope, was in contact with realities. The war had broken out in Greece by the Turkish capture of Argos, which a Greek priest betrayed. The Venetians laid siege to Corinth and built a wall, the old six-mile wall, across the isthmus, and had they been directed by a brave and competent commander, they would have captured the key of the Morea. But, disheartened by defeat in some small engagements with Omar Pasha, who had marched up from the south of the peninsula to raise the siege, they abandoned the defense of the isthmus before Mahmoud Pasha, the Grand Vizier, arrived with an army from the north, 1463. Their failure at this favorable tide put a term to their chances of recovering ground in the Peloponnesus. An ineffectual maritime war was prosecuted for the next six years, 1464 to 9, and then the great blow to Venetian power was struck. At the beginning of June 1470, a fleet of 108 large galleys and nearly 200 small sail commanded by Mahmoud, set sail for the Euripus, and by land, Mohammed himself led an army probably numbering about 80,000. The usual size of his armies seems to have been from 80,000 to 100,000, though they are generally set at far larger figures by the vanity of his defeated foes. The sultan had resolved to rob Venice of her most valuable station, the strong fort of Chalcis, or Egripos, which the Latins further corrupted to Negroponte, with an allusion to the bridge which connected it with the mainland. Against this great double armament, Venice had nothing ready to oppose, but the strength of the well-provisioned city's walls, the resolution of the inhabitants, and thirty-five galleys which were in the Aegean under Niccolo da Canale, this captain could not venture to guard the straits against the far superior squadron, but, had he remained hard by, he might, it was thought, have effectually impeded Mohammed's construction of a bridge of boats from the mainland to the shore of the island. But he sailed away to beat up reinforcements in Crete. The siege operations lasted for four weeks. In a final storm, Mohammed apparently aided by treachery, took the city in the teeth of a desperate defense, July 12. All the Italians who survived the conflict were executed. The Greeks were enslaved. At this crisis, Canale covered himself with shame. He had returned to the Euripus. His small squadron was within sight of the city. The garrison was signaling to him, and he made no effort to save the place. If he had broken the boat bridge, as Hunyadi had done at Belgrade, he would probably have rescued Negropante. It was his plainest duty to try, and Venice punished him for his finance.
After the fall of its bulwark, the whole island passed into Turkish hands. The event created in the West little less consternation than the fall of Constantinople itself. Pope Paul II and old Cardinal Bessarion were fluttered, and Sixtus IV, who succeeded in 1471, in conjunction with Ferdinand of Naples, accomplished something more considerable than the Western powers had yet done. They sent a number of galleys to join Pietro Mocenigo, an able seaman whom Venice had chosen captain of her fleet. At Samos in 1472, Mocenigo commanded 85 vessels, of which 48 were furnished by Venice and her dependencies, 18 by the Pope, 17 by Ferdinand, and 2 by Rhodes, an armament notable as the greatest that the combination of Christian powers at this time achieved. The Venetian admiral, who had taken on board a number of Albanian stradioti, conducted a war of raids with skill, swooping down and plundering Passaggio, a trading town over against Chios, burning Smyrna, pillaging the quays of Satalia, then a mart of the oriental spice trade, helping the royal house of Cyprus. One brilliant feat was wrought by a Sicilian, who, venturing into the Dardanelles with six companions, fired the Turkish arsenal of Gallipoli, and expiated his daring by a cruel death. Such warfare was highly agreeable to the mercenaries who were paid on the system of receiving a part of the booty, but it was hopelessly ineffectual, and Venice recognized that war must be waged by land. The scene was shifted to Albania, where Skanderbeg's legacy had fallen to Venice. Here all turned on the possession of Skodra, Scutari, the key of Albania, which had the same kind of strategic significance as Negroponte or Acro-Corinth. The sultan was determined to secure it, and Suleiman, governor of Rumelia, laid siege to it in 1474. He was repelled by its brave defender Antonio Loredano, and the stress of need which the inhabitants endured was shown the moment the siege was raised, by their general rush for the gates to quench their thirst in the waters of the Boyana. In 1477, the Turks renewed their designs in this quarter by besieging Croya, and at the same time their light cavalry, Akindje, harassed Venice in the north by overrunning Friuli. The garrison of Croya, reduced to eating their dogs, and receiving no aid from Venice, submitted in the ensuing year, and Mohammed advanced to the second siege of Skodra. The Venetian Republic was hard-pressed. In these days its yearly revenue did not touch 100,000 ducats, nor could the Venetians at this moment expect aid from other powers. Ferdinand of Naples was actually intriguing with the Turk, and Friuli was exposed to the inroads of the infidels from Bosnia. The plague was raging in the lagoons. Unable to relieve Skodra, Venice resolved to make peace and consented to hard conditions, resigning Skodra and Croya, Negroponte, Lemnos, and the Mainote district in Laconia. 
she agreed, to pay a yearly sum of 10,000 ducats for free commerce in the Ottoman dominions, and recovered the right of keeping, as before, a bailo consul at Constantinople, January 1479. This peace was agreeable neither to the Pope nor to Hungary. King Matthias Corvinus fancied that he was born and trained to be a champion against the infidel, but other occupations prevented this remarkable ruler from achieving much in this direction. His greatest feat was the capture of Sabax, a fortress on the Save built by Mohammed, 1476. He was fain to follow up this success, but wars with the elector Albrecht of Brandenburg distracted him during the next years, and nothing further was effected until, in 1479, his generals inflicted a crushing defeat upon a Turkish army in Transylvania. Venice now held nothing on the Albanian coast but Durazzo, Antivari, and Butrinto, while the Turks, in possession of Albania, began to push forward to the Ionian islands and Italy. Zante, Cephalonia, and Santa Maura belonged to the Neapolitan family of Tocco, with the title of Count of Cephalonia and Duke of Lucadia. Mohammed seized these three islands, 1479, but an agreement in 1485 gave Zante to Venice, who paid a tribute for it to the Porte. The condition of Italy at this juncture allured Mohammed across the Adriatic. The king of Naples was at war with Florence and was nursing ambitious designs of making himself lord of all Italy, and Venice watched his proceedings with the deepest suspicion. It is a disputed question whether Venice urged the Ottoman sultan, as successor to the Byzantine emperors, to lay claim to southern Italy. But, at all events, in 1480, Muhammad sent an armament under Kedek Ahmed, and Otranto fell at once. The commandant and the archbishop were sawn in two, the favorite Ottoman mode of intimidation at this time. From the surrounding land, some people were transported as slaves to Albania, but the Turks made no progress. Want of provisions hampered them, and presently Ferdinand arrived with an army and confined the invaders to Otranto. But help was urgently needed, for it was known that the sultan would come himself next year with an overwhelming force. Except a few troops and galleys sent from Spain by Ferdinand the Catholic, no help came. The situation was, however, unexpectedly saved. Mohammed's attention was diverted by the more pressing necessity of conquering Rhodes, and then his sudden death delivered Rhodes and Italy alike. Throughout the years of the Venetian War, Mohammed had been busy and fortunate elsewhere, in the east and in the north. Of the small principalities which had sprung up after the collapse of the Seljuk power in Asia Minor, only that of Caramania, Lycaonia, and Isauria, with parts of Galatia, Cappadocia, and Cilicia, still remained independent. The death of its lord, Ibrahim, 1463, was followed by a war among his sons, which gave Muhammad an opportunity. The capture of Konia, 
Iconium, and Caraman, Laranda, secured him the rule of the whole land except Seleucia on the southeastern coast, and he assigned this important province, which he systematically dispeopled, to his youngest son Mustafa. This conquest, following upon that of Trebizond, brought on the inevitable struggle with the rival oriental monarch, Uzun Hassan the Turkoman. He had extended his sovereignty from the Oxus to the limits of Karamania, and a large part of Persia was under his dominion. Karamania was a useful buffer state. Uzun Hassan wrote to Muhammad demanding the cession of Trebizond and Cappadocia, and complaining of the execution of King David Cumnenus. Muhammad promised to meet him at the head of an army. The Turkoman invaded Karamania to restore the dethroned princes and took Tokat, 1471. But in the next year, Mustafa defeated him in a hard-fought battle by the shores of Lake Karalis. The decisive battle was fought in 1473, July 26, on the banks of the Euphrates near Terchan. Mustafa and his brother Bayezid led each a wing of their father's army and were opposed respectively to the two sons of Uzun Hassan. The strife swayed long before it was decided by the Ottoman artillery. Muhammad wrote himself, The fight was bloody, costing me the bravest of my pashas and many soldiers. Without my artillery, which terrified the Persian horses, the issue would have been longer doubtful. The significance of this victory, of which Muhammad probably thought more than of all his achievements, except the capture of Constantinople, lay in its securing Karamania and Asia Minor. He was now free to follow out his schemes of conquest in Europe. The Romanians north of the Danube had long ago been entangled in the ecumenical struggle. Mircea the Great, Prince of Wallachia, who, by astute diplomacy, steered his way between Hungary and Poland, had fought for Christendom in the disastrous battles of Kosovo, 1389, and Nicopolis, 1396, but was obliged to submit to the suzerainty of Mohammed I, 1412. After his death, civil wars between pretenders desolated and demoralized the principality for forty years, until, 1456, a strong man came to the helm in the person of Vlad IV. The princes of Wallachia and of Moldavia were elected by the people out of the princely families, but they had unlimited power, being the supreme judges, with control over the life and death of their subjects, and the complete disposal of the public revenue. Thus, only a steely-hearted, resolute man was wanted to restore order, and Vlad accomplished this by a policy of relentless severity which has handed him down to history under the name of the Devil or the Impaler. Having assured his throne and established friendly relations with his neighbors Moldavia and Hungary, he defied the Turk by refusing the tribute of children, which Wallachia paid like other subject lands. Mohammed sent an envoy, Hamza Pasha, 
accompanied by 2,000 men with secret instructions to seize Vlad's person. But the Wallachian overreached them and impaled them all. Then, crossing the Danube, he laid waste the Turkish territory. In 1462, Muhammad arrived at the head of an army, bringing with him Radu, Vlad's brother, to take the place of the latter. Like Darius, he sent a fleet of transports to the Danube to carry the army across. Vlad withdrew his forces into the deep oak forests, which formed a natural fortification. One night, he penetrated in disguise into the Turkish camp, hoping to slay Muhammad, but he mistook the tent of a general for that of the sultan. By his address and boldness, he seems to have inflicted a serious repulse on the invaders. But he was presently attacked on the other side by Stephen, the prince of Moldavia. After his divided army had sustained a double defeat, he fled to Hungary, and his brother Radu was enthroned by the Turks. The stress of the struggle now devolved upon the northern principality of Moldavia, and there, too, a strong man had arisen. In 1456, Peter Aaron gave tribute to the Turk, but this prince was overthrown in the following year by Stephen the Great. At first, Stephen did not rise to his role of a champion against the unbelievers. He set his desire on securing the fortress of Kilia, near the mouth of the Danube, which belonged to Hungary and Wallachia in common and he actually urged Muhammad's invasion. But he failed to win Kilia at this moment, and his capture of it three years later, when Wallachia belonged to the Turk, was an act of hostility to Muhammad. Five years later, he invaded Wallachia, dethroned Radu, and set up in his stead Leot, a member of the Basarab family, which has given its name to Bessarabia. At this time, Muhammad was occupied with other things, but the conflict would come sooner or later, and Stephen stirred himself to knit alliances and form combinations to east and to west. He was in communication with Venice, with the Pope, with Uzun Hassan. The victory of Terdshan left Muhammad free to throw an army into Moldavia under the command of Suleiman Pasha. Stephen, reinforced by contingents sent by the kings of Poland and Hungary, gained at Rakova, on the Birlad stream, a great victory, the glory of his reign, which entitles him to a place near Hunyadi and Skanderbeg, 1475. But a new element was brought into the situation in the same year, by the simultaneous expedition which was sent against the Genoese settlements of the Crimea. Kaffa capitulated. 40,000 inhabitants were sent to Constantinople, and its fall was followed by the surrender of Tana, Azov, and the other stations. Mohammed could now launch the Tartars of this region against Moldavia on the flank, and next year, 1476, this befell unassisted by Poland or Hungary, who were each suspicious of his relations with the other, attacked by the Wallachian prince whom he had himself enthroned, 
assailed on the other side by the Tartars, Stephen was worsted with great loss by a Turkish army led by the Sultan, who had come to avenge the shame of Rakova in a forest glade which is called the Place of Battles, Razboyeni. But he rallied, and Mohammed retired without subduing the country. Eight years after this, the Turks seized the two fortress keys of Moldavia, Kilia and Cetatea Alba, 1484. Before his death, Stephen made a vain attempt to form an East European League against the infidel, embracing Moscow and Lithuania, Poland and Hungary. But his experience convinced him that the struggle was hopeless, and on his deathbed, 1504, the advice which he gave to his son Bogdan was to submit to the Turkish power. On the accession of the Sultan Selim, 1512, Moldavia submitted, paying a yearly sum to the Porte, but keeping the right of freely electing her own princes. The war with Venice and the struggle with Uzun Hassan had hindered Mohammed from concentrating his forces upon the subjugation of Rhodes, where the Knights of St. John maintained an outpost of Christendom. On the conclusion of the Venetian peace, he began preparations for a serious attack on Rhodes, and in 1480, Masih Pasha sailed with a considerable fleet and laid siege to the town. The whole of Europe had been aware that the blow was coming, and much had been done to meet it. The defense devolved upon the Grand Master of the Order, Peter d'Aubusson, a man endued with a martial soul, who had learned the maps, the mathematics, as well as the art of war, but history was his principal study. The Turks were aided by the local knowledge of a German renegade, and their guns of immense size for that age created a sensation. They had sixteen bombards, sixty-four inches long, throwing stone shot nine and eleven inches in diameter. But the siege lasted two months, before they forced an entry into the outer parts of the city. In the terrible melee which ensued, the valor of the knights pressed the Turks backward, and at this moment, when the chance of success depended on heartening the troops to recover their lost ground, Masih Pasha, in foolish confidence that the day was won, issued an order that no soldier should touch the booty, since the treasures belonged to the sultan. Thus deprived of a motive for fighting, the Turks fled to their camp, and their general raised the leaguer. But after this shame dealt to his arms, Mohammed could not let the island continue to defy him. He equipped another armament and resolved to lead it in person. But even as he started, he fell sick and death overtook him, May 3, 1481, an event which, as it proved, meant a respite of forty years to the Latin lords of Rhodes. The deeds of Muhammad show best what manner of man he was, a conqueror who saw in conquest the highest statesmanship, but who also knew how to consolidate and organize, and how to adapt the principles of Islam to political dealings with Christian states. We have portraits of him painted both by pen and brush.
contrary to the precepts of his religion, he had his picture painted by Gentile Bellini, and is the first great Mohammedan sovereign of whose outward appearance we have such evidence. The pale, bearded face, set on a short, thick neck, was marked by a broad forehead, raised eyebrows, and an eagle nose. The situation and prospects of the Ottoman Empire seemed changed on the death of the conqueror. The prosperity and growth of that empire depended wholly on the personality of the autocrat who ruled it, and the two sons whom Muhammad left behind were made in a different mold from their vigorous father. Bayezid the elder, who was governor of the province of Amazia, was a man of mild nature, who cared for the arts of peace, and would have been well contented to rest upon the conquests which had been already achieved, and to enjoy the fruits of the labors of his fathers. Jem, governor of Karamania, was a bright, clever youth, endowed with a distinguished poetical talent. He might easily have been lured into a career of military ambition, but perhaps he hardly possessed the strength and steadfastness necessary for success. When Bayezid reached Constantinople, on the news of his father's death, he found that the Janissaries had begun a reign of terror in the city. They had slain the Grand Vizier, who, being disposed to espouse the cause of Jem, had, according to a common practice in such cases, concealed the Sultan's death, and they had plundered the habitations of the Jews and Christians. They favored the claims of Bayezid, and were tranquilized when they had exacted from him a pardon for their outbreak and an increase of their pay. Meanwhile, Jem, who claimed the throne on the ground that, though the younger, he was born in the purple, had advanced to Brusa and was there proclaimed sultan. But he was willing to compromise. Through his great-aunt, he made a proposal to Bayezid that they should divide the empire, Bayezid to rule in Europe and he in Asia. The question at stake was not merely a personal one, the extent of Bayezid's sovereignty, but the integrity and power of the Ottoman Empire. Moreover, it involved a direct violation of one of the fundamental canons of Islam, that there shall be only one supreme imam. Bayezid's decision accordingly influenced the history of the world. He refused to accept Jem's offer. The empire, he said, is the bride of one lord. The rival claims were settled by the award of battle in the plains of Yenishir, where the treachery of some of Jem's troops gave the victory to Bayezid. The defeated brother fled to Cairo, and his attempt in the following year to seize Karamania in conjunction with an exiled prince of that country, was repelled. Then he sought refuge at Rhodes. His chances of success lay in the help of the Christian powers of Europe. Jem arrived at Rhodes under a safe conduct from the Grand Master and the Council of the Knights, permitting him and his suite to remain in the island and leave it at their will but it was soon felt that it was not safe to keep the precious person of the prince at Rhodes 
so near the realm of Bayezid, who was ready to resort to any foul means of seizing or destroying him, and Jem and the Grand Master agreed that France would be the best retreat, pending the efforts which they hoped would be made to restore him. To France, accordingly, Jem sailed September 1482. After his departure, the knights concluded first a treaty of peace with Bayezid for the sultan's lifetime, and secondly, a contract by which he agreed to pay them 45,000 ducats a year, in return for which the Grand Master undertook to maintain and guard Jem in such a way as to cause no inconvenience to the sultan. In an age when the violation of engagements was regarded as justifiable, and was even in certain cases recommended by the heads of the church, there is no more shameless instance of perfidy than this. D'Aubusson had guaranteed Jem his freedom, and undertaken to espouse his cause. He now took Bayezid's money to be Jem's jailer. His conduct could not even be defended on the plea of the interests of religion, which, in those days, were often furthered by dishonesty and bad faith. On the contrary, it was a treachery to the cause of Christendom, to which Jem's ambitions, according to the letters which Dobosson himself wrote to the Western powers, furnished so unique an opportunity against its foe. For six years Jem was kept a prisoner in France, being constantly removed from one castle to another by his Rhodian guards, and making repeated attempts to escape which were always frustrated. While the Pope, the King of Naples, and the King of Hungary were each seeking to induce Dobusson to deliver the prince into his hands. At length, Innocent VIII came to an arrangement. The concession of various privileges and a cardinal's hat for Dobosson persuaded the knights, who were already anxious to rid themselves of a charge which involved them in troublesome relations with both Bayezid and the Sultan of Egypt. Another series of negotiations was required to obtain from Charles VIII permission for Jem to leave France, and not till March 1489 did the Turkish prince arrive at Rome. Pope Alexander VI, who succeeded Innocent in 1492, and who was threatened by the invasion of Charles VIII, affected the most friendly relations with Bayezid, and had recourse to him for money and other support. In 1494, the document containing this Pope's instructions to his envoy, together with letters from Bayezid, was intercepted at Sinigalia, in the possession of Turkish envoys who had landed at Ancona and were on their way to Rome. The compromising papers were taken to Charles VIII at Florence, and the Pope's treachery to Christendom was exposed. One of the Sultan's communications to the Pope is significant. Considering, wrote Bayezid in Latin, a language with which he was well acquainted, that sooner or later Jem must die, it would be well for the tranquility of his holiness and the satisfaction of the sultan to hasten a death which for him would be life, and, therefore, he implored the pope to remove Jem from the vexations of this life and send him to a better world. 
For the dead body of the prince he promised three hundred thousand ducats, with which the Pope might buy estates for his sons. Charles the Eighth advanced to Rome, and the terms which he made with Alexander the Sixth comprised the transference of Jem into his own power. Jem accompanied the king southward, but he was in ailing health, and at Capua became so ill that he could go no further. He was taken in a litter to Naples, and died there in high fever, February 1495. The Venetians, who were the first to inform the sultan of his brother's end, wrote in a pointed way that he had died a natural death. But, as it was their policy at this moment to keep on good terms with the Pope, this testimony does not weigh much in deciding the question whether, as was certainly believed at the time, Jem's health was undermined by a deliberate system of intoxication. The insufficiency of our material compels us to leave the question open, but the circumstances are at least suspicious, and in any case, the French were innocent. Thus, for thirteen years, the Western powers held Jem as a menace over the head of the Turkish sultan. But this singular episode did not affect the course of Turkish history. A second ruler, like Bayezid, Machiavelli thought, would have rendered the Ottoman power innocuous to Europe. The temper of the man was displayed at once not only by the abandonment of the Rhodian expedition, but by a reduction of tribute granted to Ragusa, and by a modification in Venice's favor of the treaty which had recently been concluded with that republic, 1482. His reign was marked indeed by raids on Croatia and the Dalmatian coast, by intermittent hostilities with Hungary, by incursions into Moldavia and even into Poland. But the only serious war was with Venice, which broke out in 1499 after twenty years of peace. In that interval, the Republic had acquired the island of Cyprus, 1489, and extended her influence in the Aegean, and the Sultan at last deemed it time to check her course. Active naval preparations in the Turkish arsenals stirred the alarm of Venice, but the Porte lulled her suspicions by furnishing her envoy, Andrea Zancani, with a document which renewed and confirmed the peace. An experienced Venetian resident at Constantinople, Andrea Gritti, by name, well acquainted with Turkish methods, pointed out to Zancani that the document was drawn up in Latin, not in Turkish, and was, therefore, not considered binding by the Porte. But Zancani, unable to induce the Porte to give him a new deed in Turkish, omitted to explain the matter to the authorities at home. Gritti's surmises were true. Suddenly, the sultan threw him and all the other Venetians at Constantinople into prison and presently sent forth a fleet of 270 sail. Its destination was Lepanto. It was intercepted by a Venetian squadron of about half that strength, hastily got together, off the coast of Messenia. But the brave seaman Antonio Loredano failed in his attack and perished himself. Besieged by land and sea, 
Lepanto fell, and after its fall, the Turks made a terrible incursion through Carniola and Friuli into the Venetian territory, advancing as far as Vicenza. The next object of Bayezid was to drive Venice out of the Morea, and when she sued for peace, he demanded the cession of Modon, Coron, and Nauplia. To this she would not consent. But in the following year, Modon was besieged by Bayezid himself, and the garrison, seeing that they could not hold out, set the place on fire and perished in the flames. Hereupon, Coron, Navarino, and Egina capitulated, and nothing was left to the Republic but Nauplia, which boldly and successfully defied the foe. But the Venetian fleet suddenly bestirred itself, recaptured Egina, and reinforced by a Spanish armament under the greatest captain of the day, Gonzalo of Cordova, conquered Cephalonia. These successes were followed up by neither side in 1501, and when Venice conquered Santa Maura in 1502, a peace ensued. Santa Maura was given back. Cephalonia remained to Venice. Lepanto and the places captured in the Morea were kept by Turkey. In the same year in which this peace was concluded, 1503, a treaty for seven years was made between the Porte and Hungary. This was intended to include all the powers of Europe, France and England, Spain, Portugal and Naples, the Pope and the various states of Italy, Rhodes and Chios, Poland and Moldavia. From this moment for the next 17 years, Europe had some respite from the Eastern question. There was incessant fear of what the Turk might do next, incessant talk of resisting him, incessant negotiations against him, but there was no actual war. Almost no Christian territory was won for Islam, and no Christian territory won back for Europe. The attention of the Sultan was drawn eastward, where he had to reckon with a new power, for the lordship of Persia had once more changed hands. The decline of the Turkomans of the white sheep was clearly shown in the circumstance that on the death of Uzun Hassan, nine dynasts, not to speak of rival claimants, succeeded in twenty-four years. Murad, the last of these, succumbed to the power of Ismail, a sheikh of Ardabil who traced his descent to the prophet. The decisive battle was fought at Shurur in 1502, and, from his new-won capital at Tavriz, Ismail advanced to the conquest of Persia and Khorasan. The history of modern Persia begins with Ismail, the first Shah, the first of the Safavid dynasty, which endured till the middle of the 18th century, 1736. He called himself a Safavi, from Safi, an ancestor illustrious for piety, and hence to contemporary Europe, he was known as the Sophi. A collision between the new Persian power and the Turks was rendered inevitable by religious fanaticism. To orthodox Sunnites like the Ottomans, the heresy of the Shiites is more obnoxious than the infidelity of the Yaws, who are altogether outside the pale. And when Bayezid discovered 
that the Shiite doctrines were being propagated and taking root in certain parts of his Asiatic dominion, he took steps to check the evil by transporting suspected persons to Greece. The Shah Ismail then came forward as the protector of the Shiites and called upon the Turkish sultan to allow adherents of that belief to leave his realm. But, though the Shah is said to have insulted the sultan by giving the name of Bayezid to a fattened swine, war did not break out in Bayezid's days. The Persian monarch showed his anticipation of trouble by entering into negotiations with the Western powers, as Uzun Hassan had done before. And a Persian embassy was welcomed at Venice, though the signory openly declared that there was no intention of breaking the peace. Two years before, they had given up Alessio in Albania in order to avoid a breach. On the side of the south, too, Bayezid's dominions had been threatened. The Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, Saif ad-Din, 1468-95, had espoused the cause of Jem, to whose mother he had given an asylum, had interfered in the affairs of Sulkadr, a small Turkoman lordship in Cappadocia, and had asserted authority in the regions of Lesser Armenia, even as in ancient days the Ptolemies had thrown out an arm to grasp Cilicia. Tarsus, Adana, and other places passed under Egyptian rule, and in 1485 war openly broke out between the Mamluk and the Ottoman sultans. An important victory was won by the Egyptian in 1488, but a peace was patched up in 1491 and lasted during the rest of Bayezid's reign. The tremendous earthquake, which sent a thrill through the world in 1509, laid Constantinople in ruins. The sultan himself fled to Hadrianople. But an oriental autocrat in those days could rebuild quickly, and with a host of workmen worthy of a pharaoh or a Babylonian king, Bayezid restored the city in a few months. The last days of the old sultan were embittered by the rebellion and rivalry of his sons, Ahmad, Korkud, and Selim. He destined Ahmad as his successor, and thought of abdicating the throne in his favor. But Selim, a man of action and resolution, was determined that this should not be. From the province of Trebizond, of which he was the governor, he marched to Europe at the head of an army, and, appearing at the gates of Hadrianople, demanded to be assigned an European province. He wished to be near the scene of action when the moment came. He demanded, too, that his father should not abdicate in favor of Ahmed. Both demands were agreed to, but at this juncture, news arrived that Korkud had revolted, and thereupon Selim seized Hadrianople. This was too much. His sire took the field and defeated him in a battle, and he fled for refuge to the Crimea. But the cause of Ahmed was not won. The Janissaries, whose hearts had been captivated by the bold stroke of Selim, broke out in mutiny and riot when Ahmed drew nigh to take possession of the throne, and were pacified only by a pledge from Bayezid 
that this design should not be carried out. Ahmed thereupon sought to get Asia Minor into his power. Korkud intrigued at the same time for his own hand, and finally, in the spring of 1512, Selim advanced from the Crimea to the Danube, and, supported by the Janissaries who would brook no opposition, forced Bayezid to abdicate, April 25. A month later, the old sultan died, poisoned, it can hardly be questioned, by order of his son. It was not to be expected that Ahmed would submit. He seized Brusa, but Selim crossed over to Asia, drove him eastward, and deprived him of the governorship of Amasya. Next year, Ahmed made another attempt, but was defeated in battle at Yenisher and executed. Korkud had not dared to take the field, but in consequence of his intrigues he was likewise put to death. The next victims were the sultan's nephews, children of other brothers who had died in the lifetime of their father. Thus, Selim put into practice a ruthless law which had been enacted by the policy of Mohammed II that it was lawful for a sultan, in the interests of the unity of the realm, which was the first condition of its prosperity, to do his brothers and their children to death. End of section 10. Recording by Linda Johnson.